we continue through Ephesians, two things I want to mention first. Some weeks ago when we started the journey, we had these Ephesians scripture journals available for you guys. And you guys went through these like hotcakes. Like they went, went really quickly. You remember on these, it's the scripture on one side. There's a blank page on the other where you can write prayers, take notes, whatever else. And we ran out of those. We went through two cases of those. Good news, there's more in now. They're in the table in the back and in the hallway. This will be a resource to help you as you pray through, meditate on what we're studying together as a congregation. Know they're available for you. Also, for those of you in life groups, you know that we discuss the sermons during the week. As we get together in homes, we talk about how do we live out the truth of Ephesians. If you're not in a life group, I'd encourage you to consider joining one. But for all of you, I want to make available this week a resource of the questions our life groups are going to talk about. So as you leave today, on the table in the back and on the little table where the kids picked up the coloring books as they came in are the life group discussion questions for this week. So if you'd like to have a chance as a family to wrestle with going deeper into the Word of God and what we're seeing in Ephesians 2 this morning, know that's available at those tables as well as tools for you as you think about God's Word, not just when we gather on Sunday mornings, but all week long. My friends, last week we talked about a spiritual diagnosis, if you will, of where we are, what our spiritual state is. And if you remember from last week, our spiritual state apart from Christ is not that we're needy, it's not that we're sick, but our spiritual state apart from Christ is we are dead in our sins. We are spiritually dead unless Christ intervenes. And we saw last week in the text, in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, that being spiritually dead means that we are bound to follow the evil ways of the world, that we are bound to follow Satan, that we are bound to follow our own fleshly desires, and that we are ultimately hopeless on our own to change our, our nature. There's nothing you and I can do if we're dead to change our nature. A dead person cannot make themselves alive. But we also saw last week we're not only hopeless to change our nature, we're hopeless to change our standing. We are lost in our sins. We're dead in our sins. Therefore, as the text said last week, we're children of wrath. We're under the justice and judgment of God. And that's where we pick back up this week. Now, last week we had the hard diagnosis. This is our state apart from Christ. Now, think about it from a human standpoint when you go to the doctor. If you've been to the doctor and you've had a bad diagnosis, or a loved one has had a bad diagnosis of cancer or ALS or, or some disease... When you have that bad diagnosis, the first question that people want to know is, is there a cure? Now, you've told me what I've got. You've told me, doctor, how awful it is. Now, is there a cure? Is there hope? Yet sometimes we know in the human realm, because we've had loved ones who are there, sometimes there is no human cure. Sometimes there's nothing that can be done. The dreaded words when a doctor comes and says, you have this disease, and there's no procedure, no medicine, absolutely nothing we can do that will make you well again. There's nothing that can be done in that. But friends... When we come to the spiritual condition that we're spiritually dead, it's not like that. It's not hopeless. God doesn't look and say, yeah, you're spiritually dead, and well, there's nothing that can be done about it. Sorry, go on your way. That's not what's happening here. God in his kindness to us and his power is something that's possible for him that is impossible for us. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 4 this morning, and we come to a text that's full of hope, friends. A text that's full of hope, not in ourselves, This is not in ourselves that we can change something on our own. We saw last week we're hopeless on our own to change our nature. We're hopeless on our own to change our sinning. So this is not hope in us. This is not self-help. But friends, our hope is in God. Because our verses today are going to show us who God is. We're going to see the character of God and see that God in his very attributes, his nature, is willing to take spiritually dead people and give them life. We're going to see his character, his attributes, and how willing he is. We're going to see this morning as well that God has the power to do what he desires to do, that he is able, that he has the power to accomplish it. We're also going to see this morning why God has the desire to do these things, what his motive is. Because if you take the character of God, his attributes, and the power of God that he can accomplish what he wants, and and understand his motive, then there's a ton of hope in putting all of that together 
for us. And so if you come to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your kindness to us. And God, I pray today that as we look at your character, as we look at your powers, we look at why you've done what you've done, God, I pray you would fill our heart with hope, with awe, with wonder at what you have done for us. That we would leave this place with a deeper love, a deeper awe, a deeper just desire to worship you in response to all you have done for us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One thing I want us to see from this text this morning, and it's simply this. God is willing and able to give us new life so that his greatness will be known. God is willing and able to give us new life so that his greatness will be known. In this text, in this one idea, we're going to see the character of God, who God is, whether he's willing to do something for us, to take those of us who are his enemies, who are spiritually dead, and breathe life into us. But not just he's willing to, he has the power to do it. He's actually able to accomplish what he desires to do. He's willing and able to give us new life, but to see his motive. Because, friends, his motive is much bigger than you or me. His motive is so his greatness will be known. Notice his power, notice his character, notice his motive, and all that comes together. And, friends, there is a cure for our spiritual deadness. Let's start with who God is. Let's think about God being willing and able to give us new life. First of all, that God is willing to give us new life. Go back to verse number four, because the focus turns from our problem, which is a big problem, we're dead, to, uh, to what God can do. Notice the first two words of verse four, but God. Friends, those are some of the most hope-filled words in scripture, because what is impossible for us is possible for God. When it all is hopeless for us, there is so much hope because of what God can do. Now, who is this God who can take us in our deadness and give us life? Look at how God is described. Just in verse 4 and in verse 7, kind of the bookends of our text this morning, look for how many descriptions of God are in these two verses. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now jump down to verse 7. Look for more descriptions of God. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, just in the bookends of verse 4 and verse 7, there's so many attributes of God. Attributes just means his characteristics, how you describe who God is. You see right here in these verses his mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness. Now, we can spend a ton of time on each one of those. And if you weren't here on Wednesday nights so last year when we did the study of the attributes of God, I encourage you to go to our website under resources and sermons and messages. There's a thing on the attributes of God. We spend a whole hour on each of those of what is the mercy of God and what is the grace of God and what is the love of God. But friends, let me just tell you today in our text, Paul's using them kind of in a synonymous way. They're all kind of communicating the same ideas. We're talking about God's kindness to us who does not deserve it. God's love for us, his grace, his mercy, is how God has shown himself to us. We see the attributes of God right here. But let us not forget what we saw last week, the attributes of God's justice and God's wrath as well. Because I want to clarify for us, because it's so important to realize, when we talk about the character of God, I want you to realize that God does not change. God's attributes do not 
changed. God is always the same all the time. He's always fully love, but he's also always fully just. God is always fully grace, and God is always fully wrath. God is not sometimes one and sometimes the other. God is fully all the attributes all the time because it's his nature. The attributes are not like some peripheral thing added to God. His mercy, his grace, his kindness, and love, that, that's who God is. It's his very nature, and he is unchanging. Have you ever stopped to consider how thankful we should be that God does not change? Can you imagine if we woke up in the mornings wondering if God was in a good mood or a bad mood that day? How terrifying that would be to wonder, I wonder today if God's in a grace mood or a wrath mood. I, I, what's going to be like today? It would be terrifying, but God is unchanging. He doesn't have mood swings. But even more than that, friends, God doesn't change throughout all of time. There's this, this false idea that floats around today that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament. God is a God of mercy in the New Testament. That's just false. God is unchanging. He is always fully all the attributes all the time. It's his very nature and his very being of who he is. And I want you to see this. I'm going to put on the screen for you something from Exodus chapter 34. And see if this doesn't sound like what we were just seeing in Ephesians. This was written 1,400 years before Christ came. And listen to the attributes, the characteristics of who God is. The Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And when Moses hears this, he quickly bows his head towards the earth and worships. Way back 1,400 years before Jesus came, you see God being fully loved, fully merciful, fully forgiving, and fully just and fully wrathful. He's fully all the attributes, and he is unchanging. What we see in Exodus sounds a lot like what we've just been reading throughout Ephesians. If you think back to what we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, that we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. We have the riches of his grace. What we already saw last week in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are by nature children of his wrath, like the rest of mankind. And when we get to verse 4 today, that he's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Friends, all this is coming together to tell us that this unchanging God, who is fully all these attributes all the time, has chosen out of his kindness, out of his grace, out of his mercy, to show love to us. Look back at verse 7 of Ephesians 2. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. Out of God's character comes a willingness to do what he doesn't have to do, and that's to give us life. God would be perfectly just because we've all offended him. We've all shaken our fist at God and said, I want life my way. He'd be perfectly just to condemn every one of us, to leave every single one of us as children of wrath. But because in his character, in his nature, he is also a God of mercy and grace and love and kindness, he is willing to give to us new life. We must not stop there, friends. And think back to a human doctor. How many times have you known people who go into the doctor and the doctor has had the horrible diagnosis, I'm sorry, you have cancer or you have some other terrible disease. I wish there was something I could do, but there nothing is, I'm sorry. Friends, we will never hear that from God. I wish I could help you, but I'm sorry, there's nothing I could do. God is not only willing because of his character, God is all powerful. We're talking about the God who speaks the universe into existence. At the sound of his voice, planets and solar systems and suns come into existence. God is powerful. He can do whatever he desires. So we take God's will, his desire, and we put God's power with that. And friends, there is so much hope in that, that we serve an all-powerful God who is not just desiring to give us new life, to take us from spiritual deadness to spiritual life, but he is able to do that. As well. And I want you to see his power in these verses we were just reading in Ephesians chapter 2. And they're all communicated in the verbs of this text. Now, what I didn't tell you last week is going to sound familiar from chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is one sentence in Greek again. 
is one super long sentence. So yeah, we're in week two of a super long sentence that we're talking about. Now, last week's text, verses one through three, had zero verbs in it, none at all. Our translators kindly put verbs in so it flowed, but if you reread verses one through three, there are no verbs in it. It's just simply description after description of our state. You, dead in trespasses and sin. You, following the world. You, and it just describes who we are. There's no verbs in it. The first action word you come to is here in verse number five, because that's where the focus changes. First three verses last week, just here's how hopeless you are. Here's your description, but God. And what does God do? And the verbs here draw our attention to the power of God, of what God is able to do. In fact, the phrase in verse 4, but God, all the verbs in verses 5 and 6 come out of that. So think about it this way. Go back to verse 5 here for us. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. There's your first verb there. God made us alive. Verse 6, but God raised us up with him. And then also in verse 6, but God has also seated us with him. The three verbs of our text, God has made us alive. God has raised us up. God has seated us. Friends, when all is hopeless and there's nothing you or I can do to change our standing before God, nothing you and I can do to change our nature, but God, the one who's full of mercy and grace and love and who's all-powerful, has chosen to make us alive, has chosen to raise us up, has chosen to seat us with Christ in heaven. Friends, these are images of great power for us. It's images of resurrection. And friends, what is just described for us here is just as wondrous, just as amazing as when God took the dust of the ground in Genesis 1-7 and breathed life into it, and dust became a living man. The transition from dust to living man is a miracle, but so is the transition from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Again, notice what God does here in verse number 5 for us here. Even when we were dead in our trespass, again, we weren't sick, we were dead. But God, by his miraculous power, because he is all-powerful, has made us alive together with Christ. He breathes life into us. God is willing and God is able. But what is God willing and able to do for you and for me? And it's something that's so important that we must not miss, because I think so many people today miss this. God does not do these things for us so we don't go to hell. That is not the, the primary idea of the text. That's not the main objective. God's not, his main objective for you is not that you don't go to hell. He doesn't save us so we can live as we want to live and just be okay in the long run. What it tells us in verse 5 is that he has saved us to give us new life. Friends, being saved, like we like to talk about in church a lot, and having new life are one and the same thing. You can't separate those. It's the same idea. But God saved you from your sin. Yes, but God made you alive. It's the same thing. Friends, if there is no new life in your life, there is no salvation. No matter how religious you are, what you've done in church, how many times you've prayed a sinner's prayer, if there is no new life, no change that's described here for us, there is no salvation. Go back to verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. There's new life there. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Friends, this idea is so important because it begs the question, if we are being saved, what are we being saved from? If we're saved, that means we need rescue. But what do we need rescuing from? And where most of our minds typically go is we need rescuing from the penalty of sin. We need rescuing from the wrath of God, the justice of God, because we've sinned against him. And that is so true. In fact, we've just seen that in those previous three verses that we were children of wrath. And so we, when we believe in Christ, when we have new life, yes, we're freed from the penalty of sin. But friends, when we're saved, we're saved just not from the penalty of sin. We must not stop there. We're saved from the power of sin also. There's no being saved from the penalty of sin without also being saved from the power of sin. There are two sides of the same coin. Again, think back to last week, the first three verses. Our default condition, we are dead 
and our transgressions and sins. Because of that, we're following the evil ways of the world. Because of that, we're following Satan. Because of that, we are following our own fleshly desires. But friends, if we are in Christ, if we have new life, he has freed us from all those things. Not just from judgment, he's freed us from being bound to following the world. He's freed us from being bound to follow Satan. He's freed us from being, fe- from being bound to follow our own desires. Now, this was communicated really well a long time ago in the 1700s. There's an old hymn. Some of you may know it. Some of you may not. There's an old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. If you're familiar with that old hymn, it's got a fascinating line in there. And it's because in that line, it describes the blood of Christ. And it says of the blood of Christ, be the double cure. You ever stop thinking about why we need the blood of Christ to be a double cure? Not just the cure of our sins, but a double cure. What are the two things that needs to cure for us? Well, it says in the hymn, be from, wrath, or be from sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Save from wrath. There's being saved, being freed from the penalty of sin. But also, and make me pure. It's being saved from the power of sin. Even that old hymn in the 1700s, they got it right there. That if we believe, if we're saved, that means if we have new life, we are saved not just from judgment, we are saved from being bound to our sins, and we can now walk in new life. In fact, Paul communicates this really well also to the people when he wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And I'd encourage you this week to read all of Romans 6. It's a fascinating text, but I want you to see Romans chapter 6, verse 4 up on the screen for us. I think it's coming, Taylor. There he is. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? What are we supposed to walk in? Friends, if we are saved, if we are rescued, if we believe, whatever word you want to use for it, God's plan is not just for us not to go to hell. God's plan is for us to have a newness of life that we walk in. And then also in Romans 6, verse 11 and 12, we see the same idea communicated. So you also must, this is not an option, if we're in Christ, if we believe this is God's will, God's plan, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and, what's the next word? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you see the consistency in the teaching of scripture here? That God's plan is for us to have a new life, a transformation. He is willing to do that in our lives. He's also powerful enough to do that in our lives. Take us spiritually dead and breathe life into us to where we're now freed from obeying the passions of our flesh. We're freed from following the world. We're freed from following the enemy. And we're free to love him and live for him. That begs the question for you and I to ask ourselves, friends, do our lives reflect a new life? I think almost every single one of us in this room would say, oh sure, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. But again, the the criteria of scripture is not do we pray a prayer, do we join a church, do we go through the membership class, but do we have new life, friends? Do our lives reflect new life that we now have hope in Christ, that we now see growing holiness in our lives? Do we have conviction when we fall short and repentance when we do? Are we finding ourselves being free from following the ways of the world? Do we finding delight in God? Are we running to Christ? Is there a new life? Has transformation and change happened in your heart and my heart? Friends, this new life has one more aspect that I don't want us to miss that verse 6 communicates so beautifully for us about how different our life now is in Christ. Look back at verse 6 of Ephesians 2. But God raised us up with him. And now the third verb, but God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Friends, don't miss the wonder of this. It's so easy to pass over we're seated with Christ. But realize what he did. In fact, to make sense of this, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. Notice this is describing the power of God at work in our life. It's talking about the power that he worked in Christ when he, the Father, raised him, Christ, from the dead. And what did he do for Christ? He did what? Seated him 
at his right hand. So it's telling us to be amazed at God's power in chapter 1 because the Father has seated Christ now in heaven with resurrection life and resurrection power. Now go back to chapter 2, verse 6. And now this is about us as his followers. And raised us up with him and did what with him? Seated us with him. Friends, the same thing the Father did for Christ in seating him in the heavenly places, he has now done for you and for me if we're in Christ. Friends, that means we belong to him forever, for all time. If we're in Christ, we are adopted. We will always be welcome in his presence. We will always have a seat at his table. Our new life is so certain and so real. The text says that we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. So friends, not only do we need to ask, does my life reflect new life which Christ has for me? But friends, we also need to ask, do we even realize what table we're sitting at? That we have been invited, where his plan for us to have a new life to where we're seated with him, even now in the heavenly places. Friends, if you look at your life, if I look at my life, whose table does it look like we're sitting at? Our own table? The world's table? Or God's table? Verse 6, he's raised us up, but God raised us up. But God seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Friends, God is willing and God is able to give us new life. But why? Why would he choose to do this for you and for me? Yes, it is because he loves us. Verse 4 made that clear for us. But why would he choose to love us? What is the ultimate reason? And well, the answer is here in the text for us in verse number 7. I want you to see this and notice the way Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus. His argument flows. He's told us you're hopeless, but God has given you life, but God has raised you, but God has seated you. Now verse 7, so that. It couldn't be any more clear of, the, of why God has done these things. He's done these three things for you. He's made you alive, he's raised you, he's seated you. Why? So that. Notice what it says in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, forever, he might show. Now this Greek word for might, that we translate might show, means to draw attention to. So God has, in his kindness to you, out of his character, of his grace and his mercy, God in his kindness now has made you alive, give you new life. He's raised you, he's seated you so that, there's the main reason for it, so that he might show something, he might draw attention to something. Is it to draw attention to us? No, look at what it says. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, God is willing and able to give us new life so that his greatness will be known. It's all about his greatness. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that it's not about us, but about him. We've already seen this in Ephesians so far. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 that we saw several weeks ago, it says there, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, why are we adopted? Well, yes, we're, we need to, but why did he do it? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he adopt us? It was for his praise. We're also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 that we saw some weeks ago also. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So why, friends, do we have an inheritance? Why are we blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Friends, God is going to glorify himself by showing his greatness. He's willing and able to give us new life so that his greatness will be known. So how does us having new life, how does God transforming us show his greatness? I want to suggest today there's three audiences who see his transforming work in our life. And this is where he's showing his greatness to. So who is God showing his greatness to? Three audiences. Number one, to us. He's showing his greatness to you and me. Why? Well, because the more we see it, the more we're going to be satisfied. 
Friends, for God just to glorify himself and us to see it is not pride on God's part because he's the only thing that will satisfy, the only one who can satisfy. And the more we see his greatness, the more our hearts will be content. It's for our good and his glory at the same time. Those are not incompatible. But friends, the more we see his greatness, the more we worship and the more we find our purpose of doing what we were made to do. In verse 7, it's told so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness us. In the coming ages, for all eternity, friends, you and I, if we're children of God, will be seeing his greatness. Do you realize that we will never get bored of that? That 120 trillion years from now, you and I will still be discovering how great God is? We're not going to be in heaven for a few thousand years and be like, yep, I got God figured out, nothing else to know now, let's go on my way. No, God is so great. The immeasurable riches of his greatness are such that for all eternity, you and I will never cease to discover more of the greatness of of God. We will never cease to be in awe of it. Friends, in heaven, we will never yawn because we've been around God so long. His greatness is so vast, so immeasurable, that we will never in heaven be like, well, that's, I've seen God for the last 220 trillion years. What's tomorrow? We will still be stunned in utter amazement because we're still discovering how infinitely great He is. He's showing us the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness to us, and we will worship Him in response. So God is showing His greatness to us. He's letting us marvel that He took us out of our deadness and rebellion and made us His friends and gave us a seat at His table, and we're going to marvel at that for all eternity and marvel at Him for all eternity. But He doesn't just show it to us, friends. He transforms us. He gives us new life. Secondly, to show the world His greatness. To show the world His greatness by transforming us. I mean, think about this. If you had a leader in North Korea decide to become a, come to the United States to affect to become a friend of the United States, don't you think that would make the news and the whole world would take notice? How much more so when someone who's an enemy of God, who hates God, is living for themselves, is bound to the world, bound to the flesh, bound to the devil, now becomes a friend of God and has a seat at his table? God does a miraculous transformation, taking his enemies and making them his friends. Taking people with no desire for him and putting desire in their heart for him. And taking people who are living for themselves and all of a sudden now they're living for God's glory and living to serve other people. And friends, God is doing this in our life not just for us, but so others will take notice as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 gives us a glimpse into this insight. We're told there to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what God's doing here? He is transforming us. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's part of the glimpse of the new life we have when he's raised us up and given us new life. But why is he doing that? Obviously to glorify himself, to show his greatness. But part of that is so that the Gentiles, that describes the non-believers around us, they may see our good deeds and not be like, man, that person's awesome. But to see our good deeds and glorify God, God transforms us. He gives us new life so the lost around take notice of the difference Christ has made in us. We see the same thing also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sounds like a new life, doesn't it? It's part of what it means to be raised in new life. But listen to what happens when we do that. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. What's God's plan is for us to sow in our hearts, not just when we're in this room, but when we're at school, when we're at work, when we're driving down the boulevard, when we're at Walmart, wherever we are, to always be honoring Christ the Lord as holy, to have a new life, to be seated at his table no matter where we are here on this earth. And as we do that, friends, our life will be different. There will be a hope, there'll be a joy, there'll be a peace in us no matter what's falling apart around us, and the lost will take notice. And so we're commanded here to be ready because if we are walking in newness of life that we have in Christ, the lost should take notice or asking questions. How do you have hope in that trial? Or 
how do you have joy? That person wronged you so bad. Why are you so calm in this? And we need to be ready to make a defense for the hope we have in Christ. So God shows his greatness in new, by giving his new life to us. He shows it to the world around us. But lastly, don't miss this. He's showing his greatness to the spirit world, to the unseen world of angels and demons that we, we don't even see, but that are very real around us. Also in 1 Peter chapter 1. I got a lot of 1 Peter quotes today. Maybe we'll have to preach through that book sometime soon. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It is revealed to them, as the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which, catch this phrase, angels long to look. Let that sink in for just a minute. That In heaven, the angels can see, apparently, a glimpse of what's happening on earth here. And they marvel at redemption. They long to look into what's happening. That God would take people who are his enemies, who deserve nothing but wrath, and they're experiencing grace, mercy, kindness, love. People who are living for themselves start living for God. And the angels long to look into these things. God is showing his greatness, even to the spirit realm, of what, by transforming us and giving us new life. Friends, God is willing and God is able to give us new life so that his greatness will be known. So it'll be known to us because then we'll be satisfied to the lost around us so they can begin to know how great he is and even to the angelic realm to see how great he is. So friends, what about you? In this text, there's only two people. There is no in-between. We either are dead in our sins, following the world, following our own desires, and following the enemy, or we are recipients of new life in Christ. There is no category in Scripture of someone who's prayed the prayer but is not changed. There is no category in Scripture for that. We are either following the world, following our own desires, following the enemy because we're dead, or we are either alive in Christ, seated at his table, being raised to walk in newness of life. Friends, if you look into your own heart that only you can see, what do you see? Do you see one who is bound to sin, still dead in sin? Or do you see one who is alive and being radically changed by God? Friends, if you look in your heart and still, you're still spiritually dead and you would know that and you're honest about it, friends, this text gives, you, text gives you a lot of hope. You can't change yourself, but God can. A spiritually dead person can't all of a sudden now become alive again on their own work. It takes a miracle. Friends, if you're spiritually dead, if you look in your heart and you know you're still following the ways of the world, you're still following the enemy, you're still following your own desires, and there's nothing that's stopping that, friends, cry out to the Lord. He has promised that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it means everyone who's going to believe in him and cry out to him to stop trying on their own, but to believe that he can rescue them and save them, he, he will save you. He will rescue you, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. He stands ready to transform you to give you new life. And I pray that if you, in your heart you know you're dead in your sins, that you'll not play church anymore and not put your hope in some prayers you pray, but to put your hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And what about those of you in new life? Because I get to know you all. I, I see new life in so many of you. I see those who understand they're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. who understand that they have new life, not because of you, but because of what Christ has done in you. And can I challenge you this week as well? to not lose the wonder and amazement of that, to realize that this week, no matter where you're at, work, school, home life, in the community, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that you are a recipient of God's mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness, and that he is showing his greatness in you and even through you to others. And would you just take time to ponder that? So I'm going to ask you to pray about two specific things this week. If you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that means you already have tasted and seen that God is good. Would you this week say, God, would you increase my appetite for you? If you've tasted and seen that God is good, 
God's greatness is beyond what you've experienced. Again, 120 trillion years from now, you're still going to be discovering more things about God. So why wait till we're in heaven to experience that? Why not ask God, God, I've tasted and seen your greatness, but I know there's so much more than what I've experienced. Would you increase my appetite and my desire for more of you? And then second, God, would you show me more of your greatness? God, I want it. Increase my hunger. And God, would you show more of yourself to me? Friends, God is willing and able to give us new life so that his greatness will be known. And I pray that in your heart and my heart this week, we will see the greatness of God. We will experience it and our lives will reflect the new life that he is able and willing to put into us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are grateful that you are a God who, would, though you would have been completely just to leave us children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, you chose in your kindness to be, have your richness of your mercy because of your great love of which you loved us. God, because of the riches of your grace and your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, because you wanted to show your immeasurable greatness, God, you have chosen to give us new life. God, I pray this week that I would treasure that and that each of my precious brothers and sisters here would treasure that. God, would you forgive us for losing sight of the wonder of that, for just going through life, just acting like things are normal. And God, this week, would you let us truly be in awe and wonder and just reverence to you that you took us, your enemies, objects of wrath, and you made us your children, your adopted children, your friends, and have given us new life. God, you freed us from all these things that enslaved us and pulled us before, and you've given us new life. And God, I pray we'd walk in that this week. Lord, we, just as we, as dead people can't choose life, Father, we can't choose to walk in holiness this week. God, you have to breathe life into us. We need your grace to live out the Christian life just as much as we need your grace to come to faith in Christ. So God, we cry out this morning for more grace to walk with you, to live for you, to experience new life. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room who, Father, is still dead in their sins, no matter how outwardly religious they've looked, God, would you today in your kindness to them show them where they are? God, they, they quit relying on externals and church things or being good or whatever else. God, today they would look to you and you alone to rescue them, not only from the power of sin, but the penalty of sin as well. God, would you breathe life into them today? God, for those of us who have experienced your life, I pray today we wouldn't be satisfied with what we've experienced, but God, we'd want more. We'd want to see more of your greatness, God. We want to experience more of that new life. And God, all this week we pray for grace upon grace that we live as people who have hope because we have new life in you. And Lord, I do pray that even this week we'd have opportunities for people around us who do not know you to ask about the hope we have in us because that new life, that being seated with you is so obvious to them. Or we can't manufacture those opportunities, but you can. So God, would you give us opportunities this week to speak of the hope we have in Christ and we'll give you the glory. Lord, we want to see your greatness and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song? Come, love.